For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Do you have a perfect body? (laughs) What even is that? How is your relationship with your squidgy bits? I don't know about you, but my abs are practically non-existent. But that's okay. I am a woman and I have curves. Get over it. Well, that's what I wanted to say, but then I feel like I've also got to confess that I do hide them. While I I believe that we should not shame people for not being supposedly perfect and that all these ideas about what constitutes perfection are misogynistic and stupid and patriarchal and no... I also fall victim to it, right? I do hide the fat bits and I do try and dress to conceal my imperfections. Oh, I wonder if you relate. I'm really looking forward to your feedback on this episode, especially if you are a woman who feels the pressure. But, you know, we should say this is not entirely gendered. While there is a very kind of strong gendered element with this whole idea of the male gaze and the nonsense that is this idealised female form... Body image affects everybody, people of all genders, but it also particularly affects, as we know very well, young people. And just to do the show notes for this this one, I googled body image issues in young people and predictably they were just pages and pages of stuff, endless articles and studies, but I just pulled out one example. This is from the Mental Health Foundation in the UK. And, you know, it's predictably annoying and upsetting. Okay. While body image concerns affect both boys and girls, research suggests that girls are more likely to be dissatisfied with their appearance and their weight than boys. In our survey, 46% of girls reported that their body image causes them to worry often or always. Isn't that heartbreaking? Compared to 25% of boys. And it also says that body image can affect really young children. And one reviewer had found studies identifying body dissatisfaction in children under the age of six. I mean, what are we doing? Okay, it's not just fashion that feeds all this, right? I just, I sort of wanted to just note that it is media in general. It's music, it's Hollywood, it's, I don't know, TikTok influencers. But you and I are interested in fashion, so that's where we're going to stick. And my question is, why does fashion have such a problem in accepting all bodies the way they are and recognising the beauty in different shapes and sizes. My guest this week has had enough. (laughs) Self-described as that body-morphing bitch, Michaela Stark is a super-talented London-based Aussie whose beautiful work often includes her own glorious self-modelling, her Paris-worthy beau-bedecked couture lingerie. As Michaela tells me in this interview, at fashion school, even though she loved it, actually, she went to QUT in Queensland and she reckons they taught her a lot about the technicalities of pattern making and sewing. So she loved it. But she said she never learned to design for someone with curves. That just was not on the agenda. All right. So Michaela works as, so she's this really skilled maker. She's got this new couture lingerie line, which is amazing. She also works as a costume designer. She's her own model, like I said. She's a creative director. And what she does basically celebrates the soft bits of the female form. 
by distorting them. She makes these corsets that kind of squeeze and squidge all the fat bits and contort them rather than conceal them. And that that's the whole point. She's saying, look, this is beautiful. Change your thinking about what it is that should be sculpted and in what way. It's so interesting. Her work is not just me that finds it fascinating. She's she's worked with some massive names from, well, photographers like Nick Knight and Sol Sunsbo. She's done a load of stuff on the covers of magazines featuring herself, but also Sam Smith. Did you see that? On their cover for Perfect magazine. And she's even worked with Beyonce. I'm so happy to bring this conversation to you. It happened in London a while ago. We recorded it in her studio. And I will just say it was before... She did last year's Victoria's Secret collab. Check out the show notes. You can see the images and read all about it. But essentially, the whole old school Victoria's Angels stuff fell apart in 2019, partly because people, I think, were sick of it. And it started to feel reductive and sales were down. But mostly because the founder or the owner was like some dirty old man and it was all revealed. So he was linked to Jeffrey Epstein and blah, 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 gross read the show notes on that. But in 2023, there was a Victoria's Secret reboot. And this took the form of a film presentation. And Michaela was invited to create three fantastic looks. Now, when we talked, she told me that she'd never had her Instagram deleted. But she was very used to trolling. And a warning here, she does mention some pretty revolting and dangerous comments from trolls at the end of this interview. And actually, there's there's another triggery bit where she talks about how some of the boys used to talk to her when she was a teenager. Oh, dear. But yeah, she'd never had her Instagram censored until Victoria's Secret. And she received negative comments and trollings and then had her Instagram account deleted. It was then reinstated. And she wrote in a post, this was an entire new level of crazy, where trolls quite literally acted as a collective to take down my socials and effectively my voice as an artist because they can't handle my body. Okay, this is a must listen. It's a frank conversation on fat shaming, where the body positivity movement doesn't go far enough, and ultimately, the magic powers of backing your own vision. What, even when people keep telling you you'll never make it? Especially then. <laughs> Take that, naysayers. We're recording. Cool. Welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis Podcast, Michaela Stark. Thank you for inviting me into your studio. Thank you for coming. It's a weirdly sensationally good studio. You're right in the middle of the city in London, like literally in surrounded by, I would imagine, who works in Hoban? High court judges. I think it's like a really high-end investment um, bankers. bankers that uh, I'm looking into every day. Yeah. Hysterical. D- you did actually <laughs> say to me before that on certain photo shoot afternoons, days, yeah. you have been tempted to flash through the window. Yeah, to see if they could see us because it's literally just like rows and rows of people on computers because we're always naked, both of us. So we flashed through the window to see if they could actually see what was going on and they definitely could. I love that you're Um, bringing the art and the risk to this neck of the woods. All right. (laughs) Just to begin with, why don't you tell us in brief what it is that you do because your practice is art and fashion and photography, right? Yes. I started as a designer um, I went to design school and then um, after I graduated, I started working as a seamstress and then through that, I sort of, I was in London, I graduated in Australia um, and I got myself like a tiny studio, much tinier than it is now. 
But you are, you're a couture lingerie maker. You're your own model. Yeah. And you are, I would say, quite a political artist as well as being someone who's actually just started their own label in terms of making product that's your first range that people can buy. Mm-hmm. So I started, I started working on my own body in my spare time um, between sort of freelance jobs, working as a freelance seamstress, just sort of draping clothes on myself and trying to figure out how to design clothes that I want to wear. Because while I could sew and while I loved to design, I always felt like I had only learned how to design clothes for a body that was more or less straight up and down. Um, and I learned how to grade from that but I never learned how to actually design for someone with curves. So I just sort of started that process in my own time and started documenting what I was doing in my bedroom or in my like tiny studio on my iPhone. And it sort of just very organically led to me putting tight clothes on my body and then seeing how my body was sort of ballooning out and then photographing that in myself. Um, And I would photograph myself with my head cut off and I'd be able to sort of take a step back from my body and the emotional connection that I have with my body. Mm. And then start to see my curves as beautiful and something that really added to the imagery that I was taking, Mm. that I didn't mean to be taking. It was very, like, organic and natural. Um, And it ended up to me establishing this aesthetic where I sort of compress the body and compress, use corsetry and lingerie to sort of compress the body so that the parts of the body that we're conditioned to hate, like the curves and the fat and all the squish, it sort of balloons out in a very artistic way and sort of appears as beautiful. If you had to sum up what you do in one sentence, (laughs) what would you say? Oh, God. I I would say I am a body morpher. Really? I don't know. It's so hard. I honestly do. Every day it's different, but it all comes back to the same thing. Like I create clothes that sculpt the body into a a brand new silhouette. Okay. So we met at an event at the Design Museum in London. (laughs) It was part of the SCCI, which is the Sherman Centre for Contemporary Ideas. And The UK-Australia season, which is a thing. Apparently it was only a thing for the first time this year, but there you go. So it's kind of a cultural exchange. We were on a panel. Just tell us, what were you wearing yesterday? Yesterday I was wearing an eclectic mix of a graduate piece mixed with a very early version of my asymmetrical corset that allows one boob to bellow out and that pushes the other one right up. And a pair of bloomers that was also a very early version of the bloomers that I had been making that I have now developed properly for my new season. So it was kind of, and a, and a bow that's new season. So it was a mixture of pieces that I've been making since I'm 19 to now. Describe the bow, actually, because I think the uh, outsized nature of it and its false prettiness is really interesting. The bow, it was huge. It's quite a big bow. On your head? Yeah. It's made of denim and it's a very structural piece. I don't know how to describe that. Well, it's interesting. <laughs> what's interesting to me is that there's this strangely pretty aesthetic that actually is anything but simply pretty. I mean, girlish. Definitely. Um, I used to describe my aesthetic as unapologetically feminine. So in that way, um, I love to push the grotesque in this of the body 
in really crazy ways where it's like accentuating all the ugly parts of the body, accentuating the fat, accentuating like the oozy parts of the body that usually fashion garments try to hide. Um, but I'm aware that if I just do that and I don't make it beautiful, it's really hard to start conversations on beauty if you're Ooh, just talking yeah. about ugliness. Yeah. So there's a tension on purpose with the almost cliched prettiness and then the quite confronting other side and asking us to, I think, well, what it makes me feel is that it's asking us to examine our assumptions about what makes the grade for beautiful. Definitely. So if you're, if you're, if you're trying to have a conversation about beauty, but you're just making things ugly, it's really hard to then bring that back to beauty or make people question what they see as beauty because they're just going to say, I don't like that. But if they like it and they don't know why they like it, then it challenges those ideas in their head and they have to really think about it. It starts conversations and they go, why do I like this when I also kind of don't like this? And it, it's... Mm. Okay. The, yeah. the first thing I said to you when we met on Saturday was, does it hurt? <laughs> and you were like, everyone always says that. But constantly. I, I'd written down, when my socks are too tight, I lose my mind. <laughs> Can't think of anything worse than having really tight socks around your ankles. So for me, oh to God. see the idea of being constricted into corsetry, very tight, freaks me out. But you said, what? I can't remember exactly what I said, but usually when people say, does it hurt? I say, it depends. Um, if I'm just simply wearing strings around my body or something, usually that doesn't hurt. It's like if you're wearing like a skirt that's a little bit tight and you, it doesn't hurt, but you feel your fat sort of folding out of it, you know, that sort of feeling. Um, and particularly because my body is quite soft, there's a lot to dig into, so it's not very painful. Or if you grab your boobs and you move them in different directions, it doesn't really hurt. Or if you squeeze them, you know what I mean? So no, but if I'm pushing myself to a limit, at the moment I can go to 23 inches in a corset, um, which is quite small considering that I'm not that small. Um, and if I'm wearing that all day and contortioning myself into different poses, then yeah, yeah. it definitely hurts. <laughs> Okay, I want to talk about this. You also said that when you work with certain models in shoots, and actually I just asked you before, we're going to get onto it later, but about working with Nick Knight, how long it, mm -hmm. how long the posing was required for, if that makes sense. Yeah. You said it can make you feel faint, it can make you feel... Definitely. So that shoot was quite extreme because we knew that um, we were going to be put into a sculpture that is going to probably last beyond our lifetimes. Um because he made an alab alabaster sculpture out of us, um, me and three models. And it was like nine foot tall, life size, and they were all dressed in my designs. It's actually um, incredible. Yeah, it's insane. And I'm really, he's only at the moment made me out of the alabaster and the rest of it he sort of is like the first of the process. So we wanted to see how it looked at nine foot and like we're going to go in and develop it more and he might want us to get in for more scans to like, continue the process and keep it alive. But basically, I used two other models that I've worked with a lot, Jada Bell and Dodo. I knew that I wanted models that I understand my practice, that I connect with emotionally as well, that I'd want to be in a sculpture with forever. Um, because you're all over each other. We're all over each other. And that, like, 
like also that can hack the pain or the discomfort shall we exactly say. and they know they know how it works um and there was one day where it was just me and dodo shooting and we had to put the corsets on to the tightest they would go we both wanted it to because we're like if we're going to be immortalized we're going to go extreme like we don't want to be like immortalized and like boring you know what i mean so we went extreme and i think that morning i passed out because we, then we had we put the corsets on at um limit and then had to crunch into our waist and hold poses for like six minutes at a time. That sounds dangerous to me. It is. Um, so why would you put yourself through it? Like I want to say, don't do that. It is dangerous, but it's it's not. It's like I've got assistants there who know the drill, who've worked with me many times. Like it's as dangerous as Dita Von Teese putting on a corset or Kim Kardashian putting on a corset. It's not like it's anything different you know what I mean okay we're going to come back to some of the well actually I want most of this interview to be around why you're doing this and what you want us to do with it if you like but let's just talk about the history of corsetry because I think it's super interesting so corsets have been worn since the 16th century by women some men but mostly women let's say and this is from French Vogue. So what began as a close-fitting sleeveless bodice evolved into an undergarment with stays made of whalebone, then steel. We know about that. You've seen those mm-hmm. things in the V&A, right? So steel boning. Do you? Yeah. Ah. I used two different types of steel boning. I used to use the plastic one, the Ridgeline. Um, But Ridgeline is used in some couture houses, in some garments. Like it's a, it's the one that's really bendy. But it, when I put it, like, I was wearing a corset, actually, um, at the talk the other day with Ridgeland boning. And did you see how it flicked up at the back behind me? Oh, it bent. That was because it was too tight. Yeah. And the boning couldn't handle it being that tight on the body. And so it flicked up um, versus, like, normal couture houses don't usually pull their garments as tight as I do. So they can sort of get away with it a bit more. How interesting. Okay, hang on. So... When they were able to use steel, then steel was brought in. Obviously, whalebone was actually the bones of a whale. Creepy. Mm -hmm. There you go. But the shape of the corset evolved over its 400 years in use, alternating between shorter and longer waistlines, where it sat on the hips and all of that, etc. Now, in the 1800s is when the S-Bend corset came in, and that was sort of the limit of my knowledge on this before I did a bit of quick Googling before this interview, right? We all, I think we can all see that S-spend shape. It literally is mm-hmm. an S. And then there was a lot of controversy around that. Is it a tool of the patriarchy forcing women to be trussed up in these things when they don't want to be, pushing them into artificial shapes that they don't choose? And then by the 20s, when the corsets were for the first time, I think, discarded en masse. That was seen as very liberating. And then obviously in the 50s, it came back in a slightly different way. But yeah. you, you and I talked about this at the weekend, Michaela, and you said you actually wrote your dissertation at university on parts of this. Yeah, I looked at like the connection of like um, the sexualization of young women, like, or girls t- as old as 10, um, and the corsetry as in young Victorian as times. Yeah, as young Crikey, as 10. yeah. Yeah, and because they had to wear corsets um, to keep their waist small because the waist of a child was really idealised 
And if you started as an adult, it was too late. So if you wear, start wearing corsets to when train you're young, you. it trains you and keeps your waist small. And actually, this is similar. Obviously, it's a different story in a different culture, but to foot binding in China. Yeah. This was about uh, getting in early to contort the body. And there's yeah. a long history of it across different cultures. Yeah. But so you, when you wrote about this, you thought it was awful. I thought it was awful. I thought it was... Um, Obviously, in this context, it is awful. It's forcing people to wear the corset and forcing children, but also just forcing women in general to wear it. Um, and I believe this was so long ago. This was like 10 years ago that I wrote it. So, But I believe that um, like, what happens is that then you sort of almost start to rely on it because you've been wearing it since you're a child. So then you start to rely on it and then you, you wear it for the rest of your life because your body's used to it, mm. you know. Um, and I imagine that if you're wearing a corset every day, then you sort of lose a lot of your core muscle strength as well. And so then you rely on the whale burning to keep you up. What's so interesting to me, though, is that now you have a different perspective. That doesn't mean you've changed your mind about that being grotesque to put children into corsetry, but that you've changed your perspective on what a corset can mean and do. And it's to do with who has the power, right? Yeah, so I think... Obviously, when you're being forced to wear any garment, it's disempowering. Let us choose that we're going to wear it. And if we want to wear it, it's empowering. But don't make people wear things and don't make people wear things that particularly limit their life, you know what I mean, Like and restrict their activity. Actually, it made me think of, we've talked about this on the podcast before, I think with Jessica Worrell, who is a costume designer who was interviewed in Series 7, but about dress reform and in the 20s, the flapper era, young women were like, I'm not going to wear this corsets anymore. I want freedom. I want to be able to dress just like I want to. And why should I have to be trussed up in this when the boys don't, right? But dress reform was another interesting one because that was also about the patriarchy. Like, why should women be restricted from things like cycling or dashing around town with freedom? Why do we have to wear these things that are too long or too restrictive? And I think... Often this stuff around being restricted comes back to the patriarchy, right? It's men telling women what to wear. This, yeah, what I think you're doing is subverting that. It is men telling women what to wear. I think it's also women telling women what to wear. Women not feeling confident enough to push back on that as well. So they're telling themselves what to wear. I think it's possibly all linked to the patriarchy, but it's not necessarily just men pushing it on women, it's society and the mm, way that society is other women. Yeah. And women telling themselves. And we, Yeah, I mean, I went to an all-girls school and I felt immense amount of pressure to look a certain way in school and that wasn't coming from boys. It was coming from the other girls in that school. Possibly it was coming from, like, underlying competition for men or something like that. I'm not sure on the psychology behind it. All right, why don't you tell us a bit more of your story and how you came to be interested in corsetry but also how you came to a different kind of agreement with your body maybe like I read this crazy interview with you in a magazine can't remember which one where you said that the only place that you could find bras to fit you when you were growing up in Brisbane was a store called big girls don't cry (laughs) 
and brackets anymore. Literally. And I was like, bullshit, it can't be real. And I Googled it and it, it was, it's that real. is And the I feel store. bad for calling them out because actually they were they're good. supplying bras <laughs> for girls of bigger sizes where it's really difficult to find bras of that size. And being a teenage girl, can you imagine having to go first bra shopping at a shop called that with my mom? And my mom had to do extensive research trying to find a store that was going to stock my size and it not be Kmart or Target. I mean, I know that it's supposed to be, and you can see them thinking it was fun, it was an in-joke, they were reclaiming it maybe. But it's also just really bad. (laughs) Yeah. At 14, it would be devastating. I used to cry every time I was in the change rooms. I remember this this is from Big Girls Don't Cry Anymore, actually. (laughs) You actually wear it. It's actually nice. It's actually nice. Okay, for the the recording, Michaela is wearing a striped shirt and on top of it is... It's like a. Have it's you like a sewn it into something. No, it has garters at the bottom. It's a sort of. It's like a um, I don't even know what you. Call, I don't know what you call that. How many knickers or something? I don't know. It's like a tight teddy. But in fairness, <laughs> it is. In fairness, for that shop, it's quite pretty. It's not frumpy. It's navy. It's got like a, a sort of floral peony type design on it, which is embroidered, which is a rust and a cream and a pink color. It's not Dagsville. It's quite plungy. No, my mum, I'm telling you, my mum like really researched because obviously in Kmart and Target. You've still got it 10 years later. I still wear it. (laughs) Um, But okay, coming back to that, what was your experience then of, of, so what, you've got a bigger bust, you have to go to the store because you can't get your stuff that you need from stores your friends are going to, right? Exactly. They just didn't stock my size. How big is your bust? Um, I think it's E, but... At the moment, I've got a smaller back, but I was bigger then. Um, I was working at McDonald's and <laughs> um, I can't actually remember what my size was. And I wasn't fitted properly. I was, I, I didn't know. So did you feel unconfident? Yeah, I felt super unconfident. I felt like, you see how my boobs at the moment, they're billowing out of my bra. And that I know about bra size now. At the time, I had no idea. I was teased for my bra size. It was like, it was a stupid teasing, but it was like, you've got such big boobs that of course you must be on your period. But that was at the time, like the biggest insult when you're like yeah, 12. Yeah, yeah. Now little. it's funny. Yeah. And also girls can be, I mean, all kids can be brutal, but I think girls have a particular propensity towards being brutal, potentially without even realizing they're doing it. Although sometimes just ganging up on you and doing it, let's face it. Definitely. Like being told, like, you... My best friend at the time told me, you should go on one of those diets where you don't eat because you've got really big boobs. So if you actually manage to lose some weight, all the boys are going to love you. It's funny now we're both dating women. But um, <laughs> when you're 12... It's funny that you're still friends. Oh, we're not. We're not. We're oh. not. Um, no hate, but, like, we were 12, you know. Right. But that was, like, a really common thing. That was, like... It was, like, go on a diet and... Don't eat, but only drink Metamucil, which is like a detox drink or something. But also the fact that there's so much in this that is devastating, actually, I think. It's, I'm yeah. sure we're going to get... I, this is what, one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you, apart from the fact that your work is dazzling. But I know <laughs> that we're going to get lots of comments from listeners around this topic of body confidence, um, the crushing 
discomfort and unconfidence that you can have as a teenager, whatever shape you are. And then that being compounded by stupid societal pressure. Mm-hmm. And then all this stuff around what's sexy, like you're being told by your contemporaries aged whatever you are, 12, 13, the boys will like you if. And that is just... Definitely. It's just, but that really got me. It was yeah. like, I remember being on the beach when I was like maybe 14 and my dad took me and a bunch of friends to Stratty, Stradbroke Island. Home of the Quokka. No. No, that's Rotnest. Got that's it wrong. Rotnest. See, I'm not very good at Australia. Uh, Stradbroke <laughs> is in Queensland. Yes. And there's a lot of kangaroos around. I've never like, seen it. I've never oh, been. Oh, I go. do just love the Quokkas. I've subscribed to. <laughs> the Quokkas are amazing as well. I do have to tell you that I subscribe to a Twitter account called A Quokka A Day. Oh. <laughs> there's just a different one every day. Oh, and they're all smiling. So at the beach, always smiling. (laughs) (laughs) At the beach, um, we were staying in a different camp zone to my dad and we made friends with like these 21-year-old boys and we were like 14, which obviously looking back now, that's a problem. But at the time we were like, this is so cool. And they were calling me the fat one. Like it was like, and all my friends were skinny and I just felt so insecure. And it was like, I wasn't even that big. But like looking back now, I can look back now and see that, but, like, at the time it was just, not that it matters, but, like, these older boys that were sort of looking down at you for your size. You say not that it matters, but I know that these comments weasel their way into your psyche and they stick there. And I was actually talking about this yesterday with someone, not about you at all, just about that stuff that can we're talking about things people say casually to you without meaning to hurt but that at yeah. a certain age you internalize it and start thinking oh my god what's wrong with my legs and then Definitely. it sticks forever and so for the rest of your life you look at your legs and you think oh why have I got these legs that's true especially if you hear it from a couple of different people in the same time frame when you're quite young and you're not old enough to know better and you're not old enough to know that it doesn't have to be an issue and also at the moment due to you know, a lot of activism around this topic, there is community online to help you feel better about that versus 10, 15 years ago, it, we were right. still in the heroin chic era. Okay, so that's actually a good segue into a question I wanted to ask, which was more about has fashion changed, but let's talk about it more broadly in terms of culture. Are we getting better at not shaming that? You just mentioned something which I think is really good, that now, if you're a kid, there's more community, there's more representation. It's mm-hmm. it's not perfect, but it's possibly better. I'm not sure. It's, what it's do you think? It's getting better. It's so difficult because I have my own problems with the body positivity or fat um, positivity, like, movements. But obviously I'm still a part of that in, in some way. Um I think there is. I think there's more conversation around it. I think being in the fashion industry and being surrounded by these people in fashion quite high up, I can say that nowadays, if you don't look like a stereotypical model, there is still opportunity for you. And if that wasn't the case um, 10 years ago even. So I do think that in that way it's evolved. And if you are a plus size model, if you have a disability, um, if you are a model of colour, there is more opportunity for you than there used to be. If you are non-binary or transgender, um, you can make more money than you used to be as well. But um, 
there is certainly a feeling of tokenism that happens where you look at a runway and they'll be like, ooh, there's the one curvy model. Oh, absolutely. And then you said to me yesterday um, that you feel like there's a bit of a swing back to ultra skinny. And I mean, I don't like to spend this podcast talking about Kim Kardashian, but let's face it. And also, you know what else? I don't like to call out particular women for changing their shape because I think it's anti-feminist. Definitely. And but we will, have to yeah. keep in mind that it's not her. It's yeah. her as a product of society. But just as an example, without shaming Kim, I could shame her for a lot of things, but not a body. <laughs> I don't want to shame her for a body. Maybe for some other things. I'll cut that out. <laughs> Maybe. But she has shrunk a lot. Now, that's up to her what she wants to do with her life. But mm-hmm. it's just interesting, isn't it, that you're seeing now. Actually, is it? I don't know. I, I, I'm actually... I'm going to There's a lot this of conversation in. on this online at the moment. I'm not going to cut this because I think it's... Um, I think it's, it's important for us to broach it. It's such a difficult it. conversation. But at the moment, online is saying, and I can see where they're coming from. They're saying that Kim is sort of profiting off this racially ambiguous, being able to be racially ambiguous. And for some time she was profiting off being able to look black. And now she is getting her degree in law. She's trying to enter these high political places. She needs to switch up her look. Um, Ultra skinny is coming back in. She has completely changed it up and now she's giving Legally Blonde. (laughs) okay Michaela this is a quote from Dazed magazine they describe your delicate underwear as subverting archaic beauty ideals and celebrating our so-called imperfections just tell us a little bit more about that idea of what imperfection and perfection means and what society considers beautiful and your relationship with that I think it's really hard to look at the human it's really hard to look at the human body and see beauty in it when it's not linked to sexual attractiveness or or desire or um, these really conventional standards of beauty that are linked to very much human nature. So obviously we like a young woman that's got big hips that has certain traits that are good for childbearing and that is what's very much linked to beauty in the human body. Um, And the same goes with you know, men as well. And there's very specific types of beauty that are very conventional and it's very linked to human nature. Um, It's also cultural. I mean, all that stuff around the Greek god thing, which we've inherited in Western... Yeah, yeah, that's true. ...through the Western canon. But that whole idea of the sculpted Greek athlete. Yeah, it's almost like we've taken these qualities of what a human nature and we've idolised them so much that we've almost morphed them into something that's just completely unobtainable for real humans. And, like, even the most considered beautiful people in the world don't have these qualities. They might in a picture, but a picture is not reality. And we, in the fashion industry, I mean, this is a separate conversation, but you will be very well aware of this, I'm sure, dear listener, but that (laughs) it's so incredibly faked at every turn. You think that an Instagram filter is faked, you should see what happens on a Vogue shoot. Oh, literally. There's tailors, there's stylists, the makeup artists. Every time the model moves, the makeup artist comes back. Like me, I'm I'm a, someone who works on fashion shoots quite regularly as the model, but also as the stylist and creative director. And my work is about celebrating the imperfections. Yet still, sometimes every time I move, the hairstylist is on me, putting my hair back in its place that's perfect. 
that I love because for me it sells the fantasy and I'm trying to sell the fantasy of the whole image. But it does show how really like everything is curated and it's not always. There's some photography that's very natural, but like in high fashion and in campaign and that kind of thing, it's so curated that it's just, it's selling a fantasy. So I think like when we're able to look at other things, when we're able to look at nature, when we're able to look at really anything outside of the human body, we're able to appreciate beauty in things, obviously, that has nothing to do with sexuality or has nothing to do with perfection even. How often do you look at nature and there's something that's completely imperfect and you're just captivated by it and you're like, the imperfection of this is making it perfect in a way. And the imperfections is what captures your eye. It's actually interesting, isn't it? It's almost, to me, like the spark of relatability or humanity, even though we're talking about nature. It's the flaws that makes anything interesting, isn't it? Definitely. So it's weird that we want to strive for these hyper-faked images, and that's become the dominant aesthetic. I think it's receding a bit, but for years that was what we chased in fashion. Even in my pictures, I some of them are edited, and... I have a makeup artist behind the scenes. I have a hairdresser behind the scenes. I have a manicurist. I work with the photographer. We perfect the light. You know, um, we perfect the styling. I have a mirror in front of me when I'm modeling um, because it helps me get into character. Um, And I think, obviously, it hasn't always been like this. It used to be me just by myself in a bedroom. So (laughs) I've evolved and I still do those (laughs) pictures by myself. You've evolved just to be like Nick Knight. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it's it's a blend. Um, but right. So, this- but what I'm trying to say is, is in a way, when you look at an image of something, like sometimes you do have to sell a fantasy for people to get the message. And if you just showed it for what it was, what it is in real life, completely unedited, it's almost like what's the point of creating an artwork? Like yeah. you can just see that in real life. And so to change, I don't know. So I'm yeah. not against editing. I'm more just against holding them true to one perception of beauty. Well, I'm skewing this into fashion's obsession with the flawless (laughs) image, but actually that's not really what you're here for. What you're doing is to highlight areas of the body, of your own body, and I think by extension of culture, that are incorrectly described as not beautiful, and then by extension, because they're not perfect. I want to present a new way of looking at the human body in being able to see parts that maybe we had considered ugly or maybe we had wanted to hide or shame in other people and be able to appreciate them for something completely different to their functionality in the human body Mm. and be able to appreciate the bulges, be able to appreciate the imperfections, the asymmetry. um, Lumps and bumps. The lumps and bumps, the scars, the marks, like everything. But we don't like it. We are ashamed of it. I just was thinking that I'm ashamed of of mine, right? I yeah, am, I don't know if it's universal, but I think it's very common. It's very common. So what I try to do in going back to like the image editing, something that I don't connect with in the body positivity industry is that so often editorials that show any kind of models of any diversity show it just as we see it. These skinny models, these elite models get to live these full fantasies that are unrealistic. And then these models of diversity we just have to say, okay, that's beautiful. Real. Because, yeah, the real, real bodies appreciate the realness. Um, so I think in my work, I try to 
highlight different areas of the body, but show it in such a fantastical way that it, it is no longer real. It's not actually about being natural at all, but it's about accentuating what's natural mm. so that you, it can sort of trickle down so you can start to appreciate it in your everyday Absolutely. life. Okay. Tell us, because this is audio, one of those examples where this should be accompanied by visuals, we'll share some links in the show notes so you can look at Michaela's work. But just describe, like, why don't you talk us through, pick an image and describe it for us. Okay, I did an exhibition last year with um, Solvay Sunsbo, um, and it was our second collaboration. And um, it's so impressive. It was it was great. I really like working with Solvay because he's obviously a technical genius, and he is so great, also like an artist as well. And he has a way of being able to capture the subject and take what you have in your head and your vision of the body without overriding his view on it, but to do it in a way that heightens anything that you ever imagined. He's he's amazing. He's very talented. Um, and he also really listens. It was like a really true collaboration, which is why I went and asked him to um, photograph the garments for my exhibition. And so I'm looking at like the hero image of that at the moment. And it's of me and I'm wearing my corsetry, bloomers and garters. And the image completely looks very warped. Like my legs look completely huge and my body's, it looks like I'm floating in space kind of. My belly's hanging out, my boobs are folding out over the corsetry. The corsetry is sort of designed to be similar to my flesh tone and quite wrinkled. And then I've got um, body makeup on making all of my body look like much redder, sort of imitating the lines that you might get on a bra when it's really tight and then you take it off the body and you still have those red lines on your body. So everywhere where it was tight in the corset tree, the makeup artist went through and literally sculpted my body with the makeup and made it redder to show the pain that I have in the corset tree sometimes or, or just the markings that you have when you wear something really tight. Um, and. This image, I actually don't believe it's very edited at all. I think it was all about the perspective that Solvay took of it. And we love to play in front of the camera and, like, I'll have my body completely twisted in one way and my legs pointing out somewhere and, like, I'll be sitting on a table and be curving into something and have someone completely supporting my back. And, like, really, like, when we, when I like to create art, I love to, like, go for it and go the most extreme that you can. How has your relationship with your body changed through doing this work? Um, I would say I, it's, I actually have been able to work through a lot of my insecurities and see the beauty in them. I think because it's something I do on a daily basis, it almost has become second nature to me that I know that they're beautiful. Um, it's a push and pull because in some ways I have become so much more confident in my body. I can literally just walk around naked in front of anyone and I don't care. Anyone can see anything. I'm happy to pinch my fat. I'm so willing to show you my imperfections because it's my job now. Um, and I've seen so many images of myself and I've photographed my own self in video mode from any direction and so I know exactly what I look like and it's my job to take the parts of my body that I would have used to feel insecure about and to figure out how to make them beautiful so obviously in that my relationship with my body has become quite positive um the flip side to that is that 
I have to be so objective towards my body as well. And I have to be able to sit in with a photographer and look at an image of myself and in one side be super emotional because I'm creating art and my art is based on that emotion. And in the other side, be super objective and like forget that it's me in the picture and say, like, I hate how my fat looks here. I love how my fat, the fat looks here. I love my boob folding over here. I love like, and or I hate that. I look disgustingly ugly, but it's without emotion. Mm. You know what I Because if I got too emotional, yeah. Do you think you're beautiful now? Um, yeah. I think anyone can be beautiful. I, that sounds so lame. No, because that was my second question. I think... Do you think we're all beautiful? Objectively, I don't yeah. think everyone looks beautiful because not everyone values that. And people don't necessarily even want that. But I think anyone can look beautiful. And if they want that, I think it's it's possible. That's a beautiful answer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm into it. <laughs> okay. What advice would you give your teenage self? That girl who went lingerie shopping and felt ashamed or not included. Um, gosh, I don't know because I, <laughs> I don't know. Because I don't want to say get over it because it's those emotions that actually made me the artist that I am now if I didn't have work through those emotions um I wouldn't be where I am yeah I probably first of all I'd say learn how to do your taxes because <laughs> I still don't know figure that's out awesome. some money all right that'll do um, that's a yeah. good answer okay um before we finish I want to talk about two things one is the process of how you make your amazing pieces you told me the other day that while you were at QUT in Brisbane they really taught you meticulous process and pattern making I think artistic Australian designers specifically like Nicole and Ford like Romance Was Born like Akira they have a big focus on craftsmanship and I think it is a skill that's quite valued within the fashion community in Australia they very much value um, craftsmanship, skilled sewing and garments that are going to last mm. you a while. Um, and I think that that was no different in my university. I was fortunate enough to have teachers that were very skilled in garment making and very strict with it as well. I just love hearing this because I so often hear, it's a common refrain, students don't get taught how to make these days. No, I, I mean, I didn't. I don't know now, but we had to make all our own clothes. And most students that I've met from schools in London are upset that they haven't learned how to sew properly. And they're upset that their school was more about um, being a creative director and creating crazy pieces that are going to catch attention. And it was less about the technical skills. Um how did you get a job as a seamstress? Because you were working in Paris making... Well, it was because of this. It was as soon as I graduated. Um, I started working in internships. So I started working... My first internship was with Claire Barrow in London. And she got me to start making clothes for her within the internship. She was doing an art exhibition. And she really built up my confidence um, 
she, I think she called me magic hands. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't think I was that good, but I do think that we just had such a focus of um, craftsmanship at university that it was good. And there was another, there was only three interns and another of them was Australian in that. And then I went to Ashley Williams. Oh, yeah. Um, and that, she was, I had to make a top for her the night before the fashion show. So that just got sort of my confidence up seeing that shirt on the runway. And then I went to a brand that I've since cancelled <laughs> or been a part of cancelling, um, art school, that was a queer young London brand at the time. They just graduated freshly and started with Fashion East. And they were really celebrated at the time in London because their message was about diversity, community, um, celebrating non-binary bodies, celebrating trans bodies, um, queer bodies in general. Um, and they seemed to have a really beautiful message. And they did have an amazing group of amazing cast and an amazing team. Um, and actually, I'm still friends to, with people that I met in that community now. Um, so it was a community. It just so happened that the founder, in my humble opinion, was a psychopath. And he signed me on as an intern. And very, very quickly, I went to being head seamstress within the company um, because I knew how to sew and because I think it was a mixture of me having the skills to be able to make the pieces and him not <laughs> not and needing to exploit the fact that I was willing to work for free because I saved up 20,000 from the years before um Australian dollars working 7 days a week in a burger restaurant and retail store for like for a year I think and then I was cuz I knew I was going to have to intern in yeah. London and I knew that they weren't going to pay me so I knew I had to have that safety net so I took a year off uni worked for 7 days a week saved up a month an amount of money graduated came to London and said right you have a year to intern for free and then you need to start getting a job but then he quickly put me onto head seamstress on a contract that was like I can't remember exactly but 20 something cents and pence an hour Super strict. He used to call me like, I remember once he called me at 10 p.m. on a Saturday saying I didn't work hard enough that week and I had been making all the production for him to go into matches, all his matches production. And I don't didn't feel like I was skilled enough at that level, but I was doing it. I was making 2,000 pound dresses to go into matches for no money. He would like call me, he would call me up super abusive saying you didn't work hard enough I'd be crying saying I'm so sick I call my mom like hysterical being like I can't come back it's 10 p.m on a Saturday night and I'm sick and I've been working all week and I used to work from 9 a.m till midnight and then I had a job at a bikini store in Notting Kill to help me sort of pay the extra bills and to keep me on track so I didn't burn through my savings oh it was, so I was working goodness. seven days a week yeah it was crazy and then so how did you go to Paris well, um, he, I went to Paris with that company first. So, and oh, and I was, I, before that, I interned in a PR in Paris for three months in a showroom. Okay, so, fast forward, what did you sorry. do in Paris? <laughs> so, I moved to Paris officially after I had run out of my two year youth visa in London. Um, and in London, after working as the head seamstress at art school, getting fired from that, I managed to get a job as a tailor for Beyonce. They just needed one tailor to come on the Ape Shit video and work in the Louvre. Um, and 
I managed to get that because of my previous experience in tailoring and I had a friend and then whatever. And they flew me out really quickly and <laughs> I was all of a sudden just in her hotel room making pieces with her amazing team. Um, Tell and, me she was nice because I've actually oh, interviewed no, her twice lovely. and she was lovely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not for this lovely. podcast. Oh, her no. and her team really looked after me. She was the nice first. Words. So she was the most dazzling celebrity I've ever interviewed and she was so charming and pleasant to everyone. Yeah. It really stuck with me. She yeah. was really good. She was amazing. No, and I did no it twice. Once at the beginning of her career before she was super famous. I spent three days in New York, like turning up multiple times to the studio and she was so nice. And then much later when she was extremely famous, I had like seven minute audience with her somewhere <laughs> and she was the same. Just really nice. Super lovely. Good to know. Thank God. Thank, Thank God, God someone's nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny how people on that level can be lovely and people releasing their first collection can be psychopathic. It's like, it shows that you don't have to be that mean. You know what I mean? And her stylist was lovely as well, Zarina Akers. Okay. I did just need to know about Gautier. Ah, Gautier. <laughs> that was wild. I was starstruck. The first time meeting him. He's a proper ledge. A dead set ledge. He's a dead set ledge. He, I was, I was, it was when I was putting on my exhibition in Paris. Um, and I knew... I think at that point I already knew that I was using Gautier pieces for my performance um, like the next night or something, or that night maybe. So I must have known, yeah. <laughs> it was a blurry time. Um, and I was just sitting at my exhibition, but I was behind the scenes eating cheesecake, like just like shoveling it into my mouth. And my agent, Tina, was like, Miguel, Miguel, Monsieur Gautier is here. And I was like, ah, like <laughs> freaked out and just like ran out. I was like, oh, hey. Had you borrowed his pieces via his office or something? Yeah. Um, yeah. I borrowed them. Like they, it was like a collaboration that we did together. So, so they, he came to see you. What did he say? Did he yeah, say, he Michaela, was, I love you. You are amazing in the corset. Yeah. He said like, he was great. He was like a friend. He had no ego. He like, the things that he wanted to talk about, like um, he said something about how some things in fashion are so boring at the moment and he loves the scandal. And it was like the things that he was talking to me about and that we were talking about felt like I was talking to my friends and it was the same <laughs> sorts of conversations. See, okay. Super youthful. I like, like that we ended on this because um, fashion can be full of dragons, but it also can be full of those moments that are pinch me moments, right? Definitely. And there's definitely a community of people that have been there like, since the times that we're talking about the heroin chic era, Jean-Paul Gaultier was using plus-size models. Jean-Paul Gaultier was celebrating diversity this whole time. And actually, he... I went to see his freak show, and I was shocked that how similar I felt with his journey. Obviously, I'm still in my very early days, but, like, how he talks about how big fashion editors are so fake and say he's never going to make it it's disgusting it's a scandal it's never going to happen and then to his face they're like oh darling love it and then the minute he does make it <laughs> they're like I knew it from the beginning and I'm like this is what I'm going through I'm having huge people in fashion tell me you're never going to make it it's too far out you're only ever going to be considered an artist if you want to make money stick to art and the fact that I'm finding it difficult at the moment they're saying like well, that's because he's like you're too crazy and it's never going to happen for you and don't be ridiculous and getting in fights with people. Um, and I loved seeing how Gautier 
he really just did his thing until people yeah. caught on. I mean, and when people caught on. Maybe that would be good advice. I was going to ask you what advice you would give others, but I, I, I love actually thinking about... I love asking designers what they would tell new designers. But I think there is something in sticking to your vision and just being having the balls to stick it out, right? If you have a great idea or if you strongly believe something, whether it's about yourself or about whatever, um, you have to know that especially if it's something that's challenging or provocative, the nature, very nature of that is that people are going to be provoked. And people are not on your page. Otherwise, it wouldn't be such a great idea if they were already on your page and it's probably already been done before. So you have to have a bit of kindness to people as well and a bit of, like, um, patience to understand that you have to change people's minds. That's what you're trying to do. So don't be upset that you haven't when you first start off. I love that. That is a powerful message. I did just want to ask you about what reactions you get because we don't have really much time to go into this, but I know that you get censored on Instagram. You have to keep changing your Instagram accounts, you know. I actually haven't had my Instagram account deleted, but it's something that keeps me up at night with worry. Um, And I am the most careful ever, like... I am so careful. I know every Instagram rule back and front and I still get pictures taken down Mm. um, that I shouldn't. And at the same time, I get comments. My mum has sent me comments of people saying that they're going to push me down and rape me and that she has reported them because she's... trolling. Yeah, yeah. And I get get comments. I get private messages as well. A lot of, like, new pics sent to me, a lot of, like, really aggressive, like... Um, sexual harassment and I report it to Instagram and they don't do anything and my mum reports comments like that as well and they say sorry we didn't find a problem with this yet I'm having pictures taken down not for nudity I'm having pictures taken down for um, sexual solicitation and I'm like (laughs) it's ridiculous it's ridiculous and then they toy with it and they put it back up and they take it back down they put it back up they take it back down and then it's at the point where I'm at risk of having my entire account deleted what keeps you doing it because you just spoke so beautifully about how change takes time and that you need to have empathy for those who aren't with you when you're on the edges of something that hasn't reached its time yet or you're ahead of the time mm-hmm. it's also difficult and you just described being trolled by horrendous bullies and frightening crazy lunatics what what keeps you doing it, but also then finish on what do you hope and dream for? Um, I think the bullies, they don't get to me as much as the people who are in my face telling me that I'm never going to make it. Because the people in my face telling me that are usually part of my community. And they are the ones that I feel like should, if I were to make it, they were the ones that should be believing in me. Um... It is hard to keep going, definitely, but I do get a lot of really lovely comments as well. I do get comments from people saying that I help them see the beauty in their body and that they they can really relate to my work and um, occasionally a comment saying that they helped them overcome an eating disorder or something like that. And so the good does outweigh the bad. Um, And that's all, that's extremely lovely. But I don't know what keeps me going I just keep coming in <laughs> I, <laughs> I like the f- 
fight, I think. <laughs> I don't know. All I right. do, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I love that. So what do you hope for and dream of with your business and with what you're trying to do next? Mm, I think I'm really just scraping the surface at the moment. Um, at the moment, it's difficult because I'm still very much in that young London artist category, all on Parisian artist category because I've spent a lot of time in Paris as well. Um, where it's a Brisbane, Brisbane, a artist Brisbane artist category, category. all three. <laughs> Obviously, Brisbane number one. Um, where it's very challenging to make money and it's very challenging to make people take you seriously. Um, so I still feel like I'm scraping the service and I've been so lucky to have the support that I've had, um, whether that be from people who enjoy my work or whether that be from people within the industry. Um, and I want to eventually have a label. Like I am releasing my label, um, very shortly. That's just the beginning. I want to do, I want to take every little aspect of what I've done with editorial, I've done performance, I've done, um, like, I make the clothes, like, I, I don't know, every little tiny thing that I've done and collate it in, like, an amazing show and, like, do my first fashion show and it to be, like, yeah, that's what I, that's my personal dream. You're obviously going to do it. <laughs> I'm giving you a round of applause. That doesn't happen very often. <laughs> Thank you very much, Michaela Stark. That was the most fun. Thank you so much. I had fun too. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram, at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you.